0: The FT.
1: On the show this week, oil prices hit $120 a barrel.
2: The Iraqi oil minister and the UAE minister, both of them believe that there's not very much to worry about. To quote the Iraqi minister, he said, so far we have not seen any serious impacts on world growth from the present level of oil prices.
1: UK government tax hike causes Norwegian group Statoil to reconsider projects in the North Sea.
3: They were pretty bold and quick in coming out against the Chancellor's proposal and saying that we're planning to invest $10 billion developing the Mariner and Breze fields. They're saying this is tough territory, and if you're going to increase your take, then it becomes very doubtful whether it's worth us putting this money in.
1: Stater also makes a significant oil discovery in Norway.
3: To come out with what is a really big discovery, at least 150 million to 200 million barrels and possibly up to 500 million barrels up in the, the northern barents it will be the biggest Norwegian discovery for a decade. So it's a real boost and a, and a change in fortunes for Statoil.
1: And your comments.
4: We've had a range of talking points other than what's going on in in Libya. We had an interesting report out from UBS on the entire global nuclear industry, and the report's conclusion was that Fukushima is going to be worse for the nuclear industry than Chernobyl was.
1: You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show with rising oil prices. Joining me in the studio is Javier Blas, the FT's commodities editor, and on the line from Paris is energy correspondent David Blair. David, you're out at an oil summit in Paris where several OPEC ministers were due to attend. Given the high oil price at the moment, what's their mood like?
2: They're in a good mood, best way of summing it up. Two ministers are here, the Iraqi oil minister and the UAE minister. Both of them believe that there's not very much to worry about. To quote the Iraqi minister, he said, so far we have not seen any serious impacts on world growth from the present level of oil prices. And both of them believe that the recent increase is largely down to the market's worries over future output cuts caused by the turmoil in the Middle East. But it's not down to any fundamental imbalance in supply and demand.
1: One of the key ministers who hasn't turned up is Ali Naimi from Saudi Arabia, presumably could have provided some perspective on what Saudi has been doing to make up the shortfall in supply from the outages in Libya.
2: Yes, OPEC as a whole has reacted to the shortfall in supply from Libya and Saudi Arabia, and we believe also the United Arab Emirates have increased production for that shortfall. However, there's no sign of them responding in a similar way to the most recent increase in prices. And according to a very senior oil executive who I spoke to earlier this morning, even if they were to react, and even if OPEC members were to increase their output, it probably would not calm the market, because what's Worrying the market more than anything else is the prospects of more unrest in the Middle East, perhaps the Yemeni government being toppled in the very near future, leading to a total shutdown of its supplies, perhaps Syria, and all this adding up to another supply shortfall that wouldn't be as serious as the one we've seen in Libya, but would still be pretty bad nonetheless. So there's nothing really that OPEC can do to calm those particular fears.
1: Just on on those comments from the Iraqi oil minister, I mean, they're, they're obviously different from what we've been hearing and writing about from the International Energy Agency, where their chief economist has repeatedly warned that the high prices could derail the economic recovery going on, in particular in OECD countries, slightly at odds there.
2: Yes, it's not unusual for the IEA and OPEC ministers to take a different view. The evidence that Mr. Sharistani, the Iraqi minister, points to is the fact that demand is still growing strongly. So the fact that the prices have risen hasn't had a significant impact there. And he also points to the continuing strength of the Chinese economy. So all in all, he thinks the evidence points to suggesting that the world economy can cope with oil prices at this level. But that is a highly controversial point of view. And the working assumption of the IEA and other independent observers as well is that anything above $100 a barrel does set back the world economic recovery.
1: Javier, what do you make of those comments from, from the Iraqi oil minister?
5: I think that he is right in terms of oil demand. We have not seen yet any destruction in oil demand, but usually there is a lag between high oil prices and the impact on oil consumption. So the analysts and traders I'm talking to, they said that probably in the next three to six months, we will start to see some real impact in, in oil demand. It's very much what happened in 2008. We didn't see the impact in oil demand until it was well, too late for OPEC to realise that demand was slow in, in, in a very significant way. But I think that these prices are having a real impact on demand and for sure on the global economy.
1: What about speculators? I mean, again, in in, in the past, OPEC has talked about speculators fueling the jump in the price. Are they playing a big role today?
5: I don't think so. I will agree with some of what David was telling us that the ministers are saying in Paris, that is that maybe the traders of the market is reacting not only to the supply and demand fundamentals, but also about perceptions of those supply and demand fundamentals. But it's very important for adjusting to risk that traders are taking a view of, well, they are not safe any longer. A senior oil trader was telling me recently that the most important lesson from the current unrest in the Middle East was, you cannot be safe any longer. You cannot assume that a Middle East oil-producing country is going to go down. And on that sense, it was very interesting, the comments by Sheikh Jamani yesterday. Sheikh Jamani obviously was the Minister of Oil for Saudi Arabia for many years, for 25 years indeed, and it was the face that almost everyone in the Western world has during the first two oil crises. And Sheikh Jamani was asked what will happen if there is unrest in Saudi Arabia. And in very rare comments, because he usually refused to talk about those kind of things, he said oil prices will go to 200 to 300 dollars a barrel. And then immediately he said he was talking to Reuters news agency. He said, "Well, but that's not going to happen." And after a pause, he said, "Well, we said exactly the same about Tunisia. That is not going to happen." And that's very much the the notion that traders in London, Geneva, Singapore, Houston are taking is after what happened in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, in Yemen, you cannot longer say this is not going to happen in Saudi Arabia. So, yes, they are taking a bit of more of a premium, but I think that that premium needs to be there because the risk of something happening in the Middle East affecting oil production has increased dramatically.
1: Thanks very much, and we'll keep a watch on that and also bring you an update on what's happening in Libya in the paper over the next few days. And thanks very much, David, also for joining us from Paris. Keeping with all, let's move to the UK and more specifically to the North Sea two weeks ago George Osborne the UK's Chancellor announced a fair fuel stabiliser on oil and gas production in the North Sea which effectively raised the tax take on oil and gas production in the area from 20% to 32% which has also increased taxes for companies looking at mature fields. Now one group which has come out in very strong and vocal opposition to the hike is the Norwegian gas group and oil group Statoil. On the line to tell us more about this is Andrew Ward, the FT's Nordic Bureau Chief in Stockholm. Now, Andrew, can you just tell us a little bit about Stator's decision and also how unusual it is for somebody like Stator to be so vocal about something happening in the UK?
3: They were pretty bold and quick in coming out against the Chancellor's proposal and saying, look, you know, we're planning to invest $10 billion developing the Mariner and Breze fields southeast of the Shetlands. They're saying this is tough territory, it's economically marginal, even without a tax hike. And if you're going to increase your take, then it becomes very doubtful whether it's worth us putting this money in. Of course, Stadl is two-thirds owned by the Norwegian government, so it's a very sort of politically savvy organisation. It, it's used to dealing with governments, and I think this was a, a very deliberate strategy to, uh, to send a pretty strong message to the UK government.
1: Is this just a warning shot across the bow of George Osborne, or do they really intend to suspend investment into those two fields?
3: It's hard to say at the moment. It's, it definitely is intended as a shot across the bow, Whether they are really prepared to pull the plug, that remains to be seen. They say that they were very close to awarding design contract on at least one of these two fields. So they were pretty well advanced and they say they will now put those decisions on hold. But what's clear is that they have more attractive propositions elsewhere in the Norwegian continental shelf and elsewhere in the world than than this particular project. And they're saying this is marginal and this potentially tips it back over the scale into something not worth doing.
1: And this takes us very nicely onto our third topic for today's show, news from Statoil that they made a significant oil discovery in Norway last week. Andrew, I guess this is very good news for Staton, and also for Norway because they've got a slightly somewhat patchy exploration record in the country
3: great news for Statoil. It's been a really tough period for Statoil. Exploration record has has not been great for the past couple of years. They've also had a a series of political controversies, some safety problems, some maintenance problems. Output is declining anyway because of declining North Sea reserves. On top of that, they've had various safety and maintenance issues, which has further put a dampener on on output. So there's been quite a lot of pressure and scrutiny on the company. And so to come out with what is a really big discovery, at least 150 million to 200 million barrels, and possibly up to 500 million barrels up in the the northern Barents. It will be the biggest Norwegian discovery for a decade, so it's a real boost and a, and a change in fortunes for Statoil.
1: In terms of Norway, because there's also a bit of environmental pressure, isn't there? In terms of how far companies should be allowed to drill, was there some sort of compromise on on the Lofoten Islands recently?
3: That's right. I mean, until recently, the Norwegian energy industry was very focused on the Lufthansa Islands as the, the big prize in the Arctic. That's a little south of the Barents. Uh, it's an area of uh, an archipelago which suspected uh, to have um, some very, very rich reserves. And that's what the industry has really been pushing for. But it's also an extremely important source of, uh, well, it's a cod spawning ground, one of the most important cod spawning grounds for the Norwegian fishing industry. So there's a lot of resistance from fishermen and from environmentalists to opening that up so the government recently said, Okay, we're gonna keep the oil industry out of Luferton, but we're gonna allow them a bit more access to the Barents. Now the industry had been a little uneasy about this because the Barents has been a very tough nut to crack, you know, there hasn't been much luck there for Stat oil in their exploration so far. So to have made this big discovery has really increased confidence that the Barents could also have some great potential to move the Norwegian industry beyond the North Sea.
1: Just one final question on Statoil. The company's focused a lot of its intention, I guess, also investment in recent years on buying up international assets, trying to reduce its dependency on Norway. They've bought assets in shale gas in North America. Do you see that continuing on the back of this discovery?
3: They're definitely going to continue the international strategy because Statoil is, is much more dependent on its home territory than most oil majors. It's um, you know, well, well above 90% of production is still on the Norwegian shelf so that they will continue to invest internationally. But I think this discovery eases that pressure a little bit because it just increases confidence that the Norwegian oil boom has got a good distance to go and that there is still plenty of untapped potential on the Norwegian shelf.
1: Thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. And finally, Kieran Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Kieran, what's been going on in terms of the discussions online?
4: Well, we've had a a range of talking points, I think, this week, other than what's going on in, in Libya, which we'll touch on in a second. Uh, we had an interesting report out from UBS, an absolute mega 140 page on the entire global nuclear industry. And the report's conclusion was that Fukushima is going to be worse for the nuclear industry than Chernobyl was, which came as a surprise, I think, to our readers. The report found that that was for two reasons. One is because it's the crisis has happened in an advanced economy rather than um, one that was still developing. And the other one is that the, the sheer size and duration, particularly, I think the duration is, important here, how long this has been dominating the news agenda is really going to have an impact on the nuclear industry globally in the future. And I think our readers were quite surprised to see those conclusions and and how strong the UBS analysts were in saying that there are going to be shutdowns, there are going to be U-turns from Western governments. Really, the only unanswered question now is where China goes on on their nuclear demand.
1: All right, thank you very much. What kind of Q&A have we got coming up?
4: On Friday, we've got Amrita Sen, who is Barcap's top oil analyst, who's been answering questions from energy source readers. I talked to her earlier today about one of the issues that she's going to be writing about on our blog on Friday, the importance of Libya on oil prices, given that the country only accounts for around 2% of daily global production. And this is what she had to say.
1: Why Libya matters currently is clearly because of the fundamental backdrop it has occurred against. Uh, The Libyan outage has occurred in a market that is extremely strong fundamentally. It has a lot less spare capacity than was originally thought. Had Libya happened during the oil market stress of 08, when spare capacity was just 1.5 million barrels per day, the result would have clearly been a spike towards $200 and beyond. By contrast, if it had happened two years ago, when the general view in the market it was that spare capacity was large and it was under increase, then we wouldn't have seen this reaction in prices.
4: And if you want to find out more about what she thinks on that subject and others, including peak oil and the future of OPEC, log on to Energy Source this Friday.
1: Thanks very much, Kiran. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Javi Blas, David Blair in Paris and Andrew Ward in Stockholm. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Philotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
3: For more downloads, go to FT.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do